Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. In 1986, Dennis Hopper appeared on Letterman. They start out by discussing Frank Booth, his character in Blue Velvet, and Letterman says, Was that, and I don't mean offense by this, as peculiar a character as you've ever portrayed? Hopper thinks about it for a moment and nods gently and mumbles, Yeah, probably. And the audience roars with laughter. And then he says, Then there was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 that I just did. That was pretty weird, too. The audience laughs again. River's Edge is strange, too. I must say, I do strange parts. What I love about this interview is not only is he very aware of how odd his prolific career has been, but also he's on Letterman promoting three, count them, three iconic movies at the same time. The one he appears to be most proud of is River's Edge, which we talk about on the TV show. And if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. In total, Dennis Hopper was in six movies in 1986, including Hoosiers and a Star Trek made-for-TV movie. Really? But before we get into that, Cam, let's go into the history of an actor whose work spans the history of almost Hollywood itself. He's in Rebel Rebel Without a Cause, right? As a background. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He was like, he's in two James Dean movies. Oh, East of, is it East of Eden, um, the other one? Uh, I think he's in... Uh, or Giant. Okay, he's Giant. In, yeah, he's one yes. of the... That's right, he's one of he's, the ranch hands. He's the son of the uh, oil uh, guy. And he talked about James Dean till the day he died. Like, they were... Yeah, yeah. It was a big they thing. They were like... Yeah. He, he only knew him right before he died, but they, were, really cool. they were tight buddies. I mean, they were both... So to, to start out the various movements he was involved in, he was one of the first big people out of the actor's studio with James Dean. Um, so he was like Lee Strasberg kind of method acting. He was one of the early ones, uh, which partially I think is why he's known for being a maniac because he's <laughs> an early method actor worth saying, because I will circle back to it. He was in a lot of Westerns that was very big for him in the fifties and sixties where he met Harry Dean Stanton, who will come up again later. Um, he, had some parts at 60s for him is pretty good but obviously easy rider is the huge thing he works with roger corman uh he, he manages to produce this script everybody's really into it he makes easy rider gets the oscar nomination uh from then he you know kicks off new hollywood arguably uh, but also <laughs> is kind of cursed with uh a extreme blank check being the first new hollywood guy he's also like the first flame mm -hmm. out uh, with the last movie, his, his next, his follow-up, where he goes to South America and kind of loses his mind making hippie movies. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing is he never fully ruins his career, I don't think. The, clo like, the last movie kind of shakes it up, but before the end of the decade, he's still in a bunch of mm -hmm. big movies. And he admits in that, that 86 interview, which is great, uh, just look for it on YouTube, um, he talks about that essentially his process was drugs and alcohol like yeah. he he but he I, he obviously integrated it well you know like people knew and I think Coppola he worked with a lot so Coppola you know a lot of the new Hollywood guys knew how to work with somebody who incorporated drugs and alcohol I mean you can find these wild stories there's a great story about Willie Nelson bailing him out of jail <laughs> because he was in like Tulsa and he took a hundred tabs of acid uh, or something oh my god and, and Willie Nelson knew him well enough to be like uh, yeah okay I'm gonna take uh, Dennis him. <laughs> Hopper is one of those people you were like how did technically old age take you do you know what yeah, I mean like it's yeah. wild I mean, he died yeah. still fairly young but he and he's a fascinating guy because he also like uh, there's a total sidebar but he was very good at speculating art mm -hmm. uh, oh he yeah, had, yeah he has a fascinating art con yeah. collection like he had basquiat's yeah. when basquiat he was, was a photographer nobody. during this um, time too so he's also photographing oh yeah the artistic scene in new york you can and find Village. 
yeah and la yeah. like he, ha he has the fabulous photos of jane fonda that just came up on her birthday oh, wow. um yeah. but yeah you can just look up just about any celebrity and <laughs> yeah he seemed like he was a cool hang <laughs> as well uh, as much as he sometimes seems like a nightmare uh so also along the way it's worth saying that he uh he also met Kit Carson, who will come up again. Anyway, so uh, he hits the 80s. Uh, I think he's struggling a lot uh, personally. Uh, and he, in 1983, goes to rehab, uh, especially for alcohol, weirdly. Like, I think you kind of think of him as a cocaine guy, but it seems like he was just drinking a lot. In that uh, Letterman interview, he specifies what he's drinking, doesn't yeah. he? Like, it's oh, like yes. something like, you, yeah. You can find yeah. various lists. and it's <laughs> The drugs, <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, that's pretty bad. And then you hear the alcohol that went with the drugs. And you're like, he had oh, like boy. a fine chemical balance, though. He was like, "Hey, I take the uppers here, and then the downers." Yeah. Happen. It's like the same as Hunter S. Thompson, who had like his schedule. Right? This is how I keep totally, it balanced. Totally, yeah, it's very and, Burning Man. Yeah. Yes. And I think, like, the thing is, is I think he was a fairly high functioning addict. So he has the problem of a high functioning addict. That when he comes out of rehab, he's very unsure of himself, and if if his artistic process will continue. So that's around 1984. There is actually a, apparently the big thing that kind of sets off this bunch of roles is that him and Harry Dean Stanton are both up for Pretty in Pink, and mm -hmm. Harry Dean Stanton gets it. Uh, and then Harry Dean Stanton is like, okay, I got to help my friend. He's just out of rehab. Uh, so he is offered two big roles, one of which is uh, River's Edge, which we talk about, and one of which is Blue Velvet. And he thinks he's not right for both of them, and he suggests both of them to Dennis Hopper. Also, on top of that, Kit Carson is writing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and essentially writes it for Dennis mm -hmm. Hopper, another person who is his friend. And then also on top of that, he gets the role that is essentially what his life is in Hoosiers, where it is about an alcoholic uh, learning to kind of function and rejoin society and rejoin what he's great at, which is coaching basketball. Uh, so that and is he's kind nominated of, for an Oscar. He yeah, wins yeah. The Oscar it's his only. That. He's just nominated. Okay. Uh, but it's, a good role. He, it, it's his only acting nomination. So that's, that's um, actually wild. Yeah. So he. So that's Hollywood, kind of like mainstream Hollywood, also saying good. Uh, but yeah, but obviously the biggest of these is probably Blue Velvet. You know, if you have a chance, and it's only really recently being reassessed, Dennis Hopper's directing career post the last movie, post Easy Rider, if you look into the 80s and 90s, which I know you and I discussed quite a bit, Cam, like these kind of erotic thrillers. There's one with Jodie Foster. I can't remember its name. They are so fucking good. They were probably completely panned at the time. But watching them today, they're like just iconic erotic thrillers. And I, I know they're kind of happening in conjunction with this period in his life. I really mm -hmm. miss the erotic thriller as a genre. Can we get those back, oh, please? Oh, kind of, <laughs> it's Netflix has realized that's Are a they? thing. Okay. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I will also say that if people want more kind of about the, the meltdown era, uh, you can watch Kit Carson's documentary, The American Dreamer. It's mm -hmm. kind of been, I think it's been uh, remastered and stuff lately. It's about shooting the last movie and the post-production. It, it's, yeah, him at his wildest. <laughs> well, I mean, Dennis Hopper, as we said, never really went away. He just kind of went in and out of fashion. And the same can sort of be said for uh, the director of our next film, whose uh, film was a comeback of sort after a major public disaster. We're talking about David Lynch. The idea for Blue Velvet was one that had been percolating in his famous weather enthusiast brain for a while since uh, about the early 70s. It started with the title and the knowledge that the movie should have the same feel as the song. And then after the release of 1980's The Elephant Man came the opportunity to pitch to producer Richard Roth. Roth didn't like the script Lynch brought with him, but he asked him what other ideas he had. So he said, I told him I had always wanted to sneak into a girl's room to watch her into the night and that maybe at one point or another I would see something that would be a clue to a murder mystery. That's also his entire career, if we yeah. can just say. Then came the image of the severed ear in the field. And Lynch said to the New York Times in an 86 interview, I don't know why it had to be an ear, except that it needed to be an opening of a part of the body, a hole into something else. The ear sits on the head and goes right into the mind, so it felt perfect. It makes well, sense to me. Well, it had to be also something that you can sever and yes. not kill the person, because they need to keep the guy who belongs to the ear alive for enough of the movie to make sense. Does that make sense? Like cutting off a sure. hand or a limb is hard. Could be a nose. Could, have done a finger. could be a nose. Yeah. Sure. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Let's not get into this. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But then 
right after The Elephant Man and all that success came the fiasco that was Dune. And Lynch knew that he had to get back to making the kinds of movies he was good at on his own terms. And thus, it was time for Blue Velvet in all its crooning, huffing, and taxidermied Robin glory. <laughs> Alicia, Blue Velvet, how do you feel about this one? I mean, I remember watching this as a kid and oh, knowing geez. I was watching something great, but being very angry the whole time because it's it's such an assault. Um, it's an assault that, you know, I now really treasure. <laughs> to say, but, uh, God, this is a masterpiece. This might be like one of the certified masterpieces we've ever discussed on this podcast. Just to, for those listeners who need a bit of a plot summary, a young man played by Kyle McLaughlin's father is in the hospital with a heart attack or something like that. And so he comes home to Lumberton, North Carolina, which is really Wilmington, North Carolina. Obviously, Lumberton is is lumber is a huge fascination for David uh, Lynch because his father was a research scientist for the Department of Agriculture in Washington. <laughs> so he grew up around a lot of like lumberjacks and lumber researchers and and trees. And so that all begins to make sense. Kyle McLaughlin's character finds, as we've mentioned, a severed ear in the field. He takes it to the town's police detective who, you know, kind of doesn't know what to make of it. He reconnects with the detective's daughter, who's played by Laura Dern. And probably, I mean, Laura Dern had done smooth talk the year before, but this is really her like star making turn in Blue Velvet. She was 19 at the time. I think they'd gone to the same high school. They kind of take it upon themselves to solve the mystery of whose ear is this. And they trace the ear somehow to Dorothy Valens, who is played by Isabella Rossellini. And we'll talk a lot about Isabella Rossellini, um, both her character and as an iconic figure in a bit. But uh, she's a lounge singer. This is why the film is called Blue Velvet. She sings the song Blue Velvet um, nightly. And they find out she's kind of in this criminal ring with Frank, Frank Booth at the head of it, played by Dennis Hopper, who is holding her husband and son hostage because he is fascistically obsessed with her and makes her do what his his at his will sexually and otherwise based on holding these two people hostage and it gets darker and darker from there <laughs> like really it's brutal um i think it is the most coherent of his incoherent films like you think yeah. about something that that lost highway would come later and like that's all full of very similar imagery and like people playing multiple people and zooming through different identities um and this i think is the one that is the clearest to follow even though it's still sure. very image-based and unusual i think coming off of dune which we've already mentioned listeners can research that themselves it, it was a total disaster Coming off of Dune, to me, this film is very much a return to the Eraserhead mode of filmmaking. Um, Eraserhead took Lynch years and years to make and then is released in 1977 as like the the midnight film of that year. And it plays mm -hmm. for years and really is what leads him to get um, Elephant Man after uh, he was recommended upon some producer. I can't remember who it is. It, not Mel Brooks because Mel Brooks saw it later. But um, yeah, this is really you're right. It is coherent. It's incoherent, though, in how fucking dark it yeah. is. It still has sure. the very typical montages you expect from Lynch in Twin Peaks, which would come much later, not much later, a few years later, um, where you're getting, you know, in this case, you're getting a lot of, like, sub substrata under a lawn. Like, but there's so mm. many references to bugs in this film. There's so much references to steel, even though Lumberton's obviously <laughs> a town known for its lumber products, in case yeah. you were wondering. Um I love the radio station refers to Lumberton as uh, the town where people really know how much wood a woodchuck chucks. <laughs> like, that's actually a really good description, I think, of this town. Lumberton, USA. At the sound of the falling tree, it's 1.30. And this is the mighty voice of Lumberton, the town where people really know how much wood a woodchuck chucks. Where everything, it's, very, it's a very white town. It's very working class, but upper middle class. Uh, and then you're really seeing just how depraved, how how much of a subculture of depravity and crime and violence and sexual violence exists after dark in this town where there's lemonade and white picket fences and beautiful roses. It doesn't matter. It's all still there. Totally. There's an interview I read once with uh, or heard with uh, Wendy Roby, who played Nadine on uh, Twin Peaks, where God, she talked Nadine. about. I'm sorry. I, I, I love her. I get distracted. Nadine. I know. I know, I know. But she says that um, uh, 
that Lynch is obsessed with broken beauty. Um, mm. And I think this is, I mean, that's the best summation of his career I think I've ever heard. And it is especially accurate for this film is like everything is beautiful on the surface and then totally cracked in a nightmare underneath. Same with watching um, the character of uh, Isabella Rossellini is like just oh, yeah. covered in, in, I mean, she's broken on the inside and at times she's broken on the outside from it, how much she's being beaten it's up. It's an aesthetic it's rough. of broken glamour too. Because yeah. this is a woman who hadn't acted much for those don't know she's the daughter of Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman but she was a very respected model and like had a lot of beauty campaigns that 100% dropped her after seeing the preview screening of this film she lost her modeling career almost entirely because of Blue Velvet such a beautiful patrician stunning woman that Lynch kind of makes her glamour grotesque she's wearing this wig this like very hyper blue um, eyeshadow the she has a chipped tooth that they purposely didn't fix and there's a lot of close-ups on it which I love like exactly what you're saying Becky cracked beauty she's still beautiful but it's like really Lynch commenting on um, scary beauty uh, it's one of my favorite uh, little bits about Lynch is apparently when he he met Isabella Rossellini for the first time, he said in his Lynchian sort of way, you look a lot like Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, that's because it's her, her daughter, yeah. you idiot. Yes, well, it was, it was supposed to be Helen Mirren in this role and she never signed. So meeting um, Isabella Rossellini, which I believe was at a party or something like that, was really fateful. They also embarked on a four or five year romantic relationship that didn't end until the early 90s. Yeah, she's. I can't picture anyone else in this film. That the accent, the physicalness of her body, it's so. Um, it's, she almost has like this 18th century body type that's so gorgeous. Like it, it's 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 grotesque beauty. She's overly beautiful. She <laughs> but, plays it to excellent effect too in uh, Death Becomes Her as well as the the picture of perfection. Right. Yes. <laughs> one of, one of the podcast favorites. There's also a good story because he he actually uh, got very excited to meet her because she was working with Helen Mirren and he's like, oh, you have right. to get me in. You have to get the script to Helen Mirren. And then a couple <laughs> days later, uh, she said she got a package with a little note that said. It occurred to me that you might want to play this role. <laughs> like he was kind of like, "Oh, sorry, I realized I was so excited about Helen Mirren, I was rude to the actress I was talking to." And then I believe but, he invited her to Bob's Big Boy to well, have like probably. a table read. I mean, that's <laughs> his crazy. that's his spot. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth saying when we're talking about this cracked beauty that the, part of the reason we're talking about these two films. And I think that part of the reason that they both have Dennis Hopper is this kind of concept of the new American Gothic, which was very big in 1986. We talk about River's Edge. We talk about uh, on other content, something wild. And they all kind of suit this concept that uh, yeah. was was percolating uh, in a lot of academic circles where essentially Reagan and the Reagan era had become so obsessed with this view of the 1950s as this ideal. It's really essentially to modernize it and make America great again. But in Reagan's era, yeah. the 50s were close enough that you could point to exactly the 50s you know it was yeah. good the 50s we were yeah, prosperous your parents generation. Was, yeah exactly yeah. so it was like uh but again ignoring so so many of these movies are showing that you are ignoring this rot and like you say you're ignoring that it, you're talking about a very white specific thing but but blue velvet and what we're going to talk about texas chainsaw massacre too are saying that also like just under the surface uh, of this mm -hmm. kind of ideal conservative world is always depravity like it's always there the darkness is there and it's almost more disturbing when it is whitewashed over with this kind of sheen of classical wonderfulness reagan really thought this was a paradise and it's up to lynch to prove that it's more like paradise <laughs> lost <I feel> like. <laughs> uh, alicia you brought up the idea that this is very much about um domestic violence and it's mm -hmm. it's written all over it and i think that's one of the things too that people forget about like they're looking to this like economic thing but like how many women were abused in this sure. system where they weren't weren't able to work they were now pulled out of factories etc cetera, etc cetera. and um that the the family unit and this idea of the nuclear family is not as ideal as possible mm -hmm. yeah like I, I was reading someone I always kind of come back to from intro to film 101 Laura Mulvey and she's written about this film pretty extensively um you know she looks at kind of the dipital triangle you have here where if if Kyle McLaughlin's character is the son then Dorothy Valens's character played by Isabella Rossellini is the mother and Frank is the you know hyper terrifying um father and you know Kyle McLaughlin lusts after Dorothy Valens in a way that a son would lust after a mother and then has to somehow displace 
the Frank Booth character to get there. But it is very true. She brings up the, you know, this domestic violence where Dorothy Valens is horribly abused by Frank both. Um, there's, I think, at least two scenes of rape. And then also there's a psychosexualness of her needing to be hit by both Frank Booth and Kyle MacLachlan. Mm-hmm. This is not like I think prior to this we were kind of like this is oh this is a fun film it's actually not it's, no it's <laughs> no. it's stunning and I I get something more from it every time I watch it as I grow older and I'm no longer you know a naive teenager the elements of sexual and domestic violence I'm really shaken and I've probably seen this film a dozen times it doesn't matter I get more and more shaken because I think it's really accurate even though it's hyper stylized and surreal. Um, every time she is hit, and I know with censors they were like, you can't actually show uh, Frank Booth's hand or even Kyle McLaughlin's hand in contact with um, Isabella Rossellini's character, so you had to cut around it. That has since been restored in the kind of director's cut, if you will, mm. that's come out recently. I think Jana's put it out. It's pretty phenomenal uh, in 4K. But uh, yeah, this is this is a brutal film about just how terribly treated women are and how vulnerable they are under reagan's paradise and yeah. uh you even see that with kind of kyle mclaughlin's mother and and laura dern's mother who especially when dorothy valens arrives to the house naked having been abused laura dern's mother is useless completely useless mm. doesn't understand yeah. what's happening the way kyle mclaughlin treats his own mother is you know very she's just not an important character yeah. she doesn't have a voice i don't want to talk about it but Everything is okay now. I just don't want to talk about it. Oh, but sometimes it's good to talk things over, Jeffrey. Uh, for instance, they say that many marriages are saved by people. I love you, but you're going to get it. Yeah, there's a. I do think that actually it's something that I've come to appreciate because obviously the first time you see this movie, you're just so like you're so obsessed with like the weird drive in the car with Frank Booth and things. But I think that there's something that is like a bit of a. This is also, I think, pretty early on in reconsidering melodrama mm-hmm. as art circuit here for sure yeah yeah so and i think that there's a lot of disturbing he makes a lot of s- disturbing choices in the early stuff like i think that stuff at the hospital with kyle mclaughlin's father who's had like a stroke mm-hmm. or something you don't yeah. really know he's in horrible traction heart and, attack or something. yeah, yeah and all that stuff on the side like you talk about like it seems like laura's Laura Dern's mom is an alcoholic probably mm-hmm. she's always sitting watching TV with like a Miller High Life just kind of zoned out uh, there's a lot of commentary on beer brands oh yeah sure. I should say. my god but you still kind of want to go to that weird bar that they go to yeah, the slow the slow what's or, it called there's that one and then also this is it the weird bar that's I love this by, is it uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, it's there. I like that stuff. Like, I think that there's a lot more to, and the fact that it opens and closes with the weird kind of fireman waving, and there's mm-hmm. just you see a lot of the stuff where I think he's saying that, like, even the stuff you consider normal, like Laura Dern is actually catcalled a lot and mm-hmm. kind of like harassed a lot by her home boyfriend. At yeah, a certain point. She's on, beat up oh, totally. And it's this stuff that you're like, oh yeah, that's normal. But then you're like, in the when you're seeing all this other twisted stuff, you're like, ah, yeah, the, none of this is normal. I kind of think of it, you know, because I think Lynch had a very, he's so obsessed with American culture, but mm-hmm. to me, especially during this period, has a very European sensibility to filmmaking. If you think about Bunuel or something like that, mm-hmm. I see, especially having done The Elephant Man, which, um, you know, put him in in an English mode of filmmaking. I think a lot of this is sort of how outsiders, and maybe as Canadians, we're kind of outsiders, view America. This, like, he's really hyper, making everything very hyper-realistic or, like, sorry, I shouldn't say realistic, hyper-surreal in a way that I think a European would smoke a cigarette and be like, fucking Americans. (laughs) Like, that's sort of... How Lynch is able, and it's incredible because he's such an all-American boy (laughs) based on how he grew up and where he's from and his father. And yet he just is able to, at a very young age, beginning with Eraserhead, subvert this kind of thing. It's actually incredible. I think about this one. You can't look at this one and not think about Twin Peaks at the same time. And Twin no. Peaks was my first exposure to David Lynch. I'd, I hadn't seen any of his films, but Probably I watched them. Probably me the, too. Yeah. Probably me yeah. too. Mm. And it's it's such a 
special series that I think if people haven't gone back and like actually watched the 90s series, they've just seen The Return. They really are missing out something really special mm-hmm. and unusual. And what I think he does so well and that very, very few people do is that he makes you laugh and then he scares the shit out of you. And it's yeah. finding that like that balance. And I remember the first time I saw that image of Bob crawling over furniture <laughs> trying to get towards Laura's mom. It's in the scared European me. pilot. <laughs> it scared me so bad. I had nightmares forever and thinking about like because it's that nightmare dreamscape mm. and you get that here as well with the same thing of how heightened and how violent that um, nitrous oxide attack becomes. Yeah. I mean everybody points to yeah. the to the car ride which is also very surreal and very like you know threatening but yeah the for me that that attack is just so it, it would be comical if it weren't so fucking scary. I, I, I've presented David Lynch films theatrically for my series I think several times, including um, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me when The Return was debuting. Mm -hmm. And I really had a hard time with it because, of course, it was going to be a celebration. I'm I want to say I'm like Twin Peaks number one fan. I've never been to one of the conventions. I'm also from Portland, Oregon. So it's like my region of the world. (laughs) But, um, you know, I love it. But I also I feel very conflicted. In the same way they feel conflicted about Blue Velvet in the way that we're talking about, because if you look at Twin Peaks, the TV show, which was on ABC, which is killer to me, you know, the, the mm-hmm. station that had the wonderful world of Walt Disney. Yeah. This is the whole impetus for the show is a 17 year old girl has been raped and murdered. And then everything else that happens after that is funny. And and Fire Walk With Me, I think, which people hated at the time and is now viewed as a masterpiece really was Lynch saying, like, fuck you for getting so quirky and loving Twin Peaks so much without ever addressing the fact that this is about the sexual abuse and death of a of a minor, like multiple minors, in fact. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because it's like you look at David Lynch's relationship with women, specifically with a lot of his muses, is difficult and problematic when you mm-hmm. look at some of the history. Him and Isabella Rossellini had a very famous, very horrific um, falling out, which she had to go to her other uh, former lover, Martin Scorsese, to try and work out. And Scorsese basically said to her, well, you knew this was coming. You knew you knew what this was. And in the filming of Blue Velvet, there's this, of course, famous story about the scene where Isabella Rossellini is completely nude on a front lawn and she's been assaulted. Um, and uh, when they shot this film, they shot it outdoors in, where they were filming in North Carolina in this small town. And people had set up to watch this this film crew shooting with like picnic baskets and they brought their mm-hmm. kids and grandma, etc. And instead of clearing these people out, they shot with her anyway. And in her, the way Isabella Rossellini describes it, she's like, I dissociated from myself in that moment because I had to, which is of course a coping with abuse technique. And also famously, they then lost all of their filming rights in North Carolina after they did that film outdoors in front of all those people, or that scene outdoors in front of all those people. But that to me is like, oh, that's really irresponsible filmmaking. That's not a safe set. That's not what you should be doing here. I I will say that she does say that the set was generally very safe and good. Okay, it's, okay, thank you, That's a one-time thing, yeah, because yeah. she says, like, I guess a lot of people say that David Lynch has a weirdly, like, very positive and good-feeling set because he, he has, if you ever read uh, Catching the Big Fish, his book, mm-hmm. he, he he's very, like, he's very into transcendental meditation. But one yes. of his things <laughs> is, like, stopping fear. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he, he, he wants a set without any fear, because he says you can get people to work with fear, but it's only like 1% of what you would get if I'd people like to were not Laura afraid. Dern, I'd like to think Laura Dern would never work with him again. If, Agreed. Because you know, she has such a like mm-hmm. trusted relationship that at this point now spans 35 years. It's actually amazing. Yeah, and I think that I think that they don't credit that problem to Lynch as much as it was like ADs who didn't clear the people out. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you're right. Wilmington was like, you are out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no more of this. Um, I think uh, the other thing we should bring up too is uh, the relationship with Dino De Laurentiis, um, mm. who was uh, produced, who produced this film and a number of other films, including the famous remake of King Kong, which yes. I'm sure we'll get I, to on this I podcast like eventially. I do too. Topic, I, but I think when Charles Grodin passed away last week, I spent uh, most of my nights crying. But um, yeah. definitely re- rewatched King Kong, or, or I think I will soon. But uh, yeah, no, he's great. All it's I can a great, ever great film. think of is the. Uh, impression by john belushi where he goes when my monkey die everybody cry 
<laughs> which is weird. It's weird that there's a producer famous enough that there's a Jim Belushi impression of him. That's uh, but yeah, it's it's. I think I find this very interesting because Dino De Laurentiis also produced, and I think it's a great tip of the hat to these 80s producers that we talk about because Dino De Laurentiis is kind of all over the place. He absolutely like revolutionized Italian film and distribution. He made Italy an international film power up there with France in a way that is amazing. But he also made a lot of garbage mm -hmm. <laughs> to, yeah. to allow him to do the other stuff. But it allowed him to do it to the point where he made Dune. And Dune was a massive failure, and I'm sure he lost a ton of money, mm -hmm. but he was still happy to make Blue Velvet because Blue Velvet was like his art one, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and he had another King Kong uh, movie. I think it's King Kong Lives is this year. Mm -hmm. So, like, you mm -hmm. can see if you look at his slate, it's like eight movies you may or may not have heard of. Obviously, he had Conan in this decade, so he was sitting like pretty. Red Sonia yeah. is where yeah, like, Dino, yeah. Dino, 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 Dino. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, they probably made enough money that... He, yeah. But yeah, if you look, his his slate is usually like one movie where you're like, whoa, that what a great artistic achievement. And I think he had a much better batting average uh, in that regard than uh, Cannon, who tried to make art films, but mm -hmm. mostly made like uh, Godard's King Lear and stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah. It's, I can't it, get over Zeffirelli's opera. I can't get over Othello the <laughs> opera with Placido sure. Domingo in blackface. It's just, I'm sorry, that for me is now the pinnacle of what were you thinking? Yeah, listen, <laughs> it's the decade of Soul Man. Uh, blackface <laughs> was not yet out. Oh, boy. I would say like we don't want to spoil the ending of Blue Velvet, but um, it's such a fantasy to me. Like I don't think it's real, you know. And and there's so much focus on this robin that ah, has yes. a little like bug mm -hmm. in its beak, which you kind of referenced earlier, Becky. And there's so many questions online of okay, was it a real robin? Which Lynch claims it was. I can't imagine it is. No. Was it a puppet or was it both? Turns out it's both. He like somehow got a real robin. <laughs> hopefully found it dead, taxidermied it, and then made it into a puppet. So it's so fucking surreal, that ending shot. And I feel like everything, even though everything gets wrapped up and, like, Kyle McLaughlin's character's dad is fine and he's still dating mm -hmm. Laura Dern, even though he's been revealed to have a psychosexual relationship yeah. with Isabella Rosalind. Everything's fine. Nothing's fine. Uh, Nothing's fine in Reagan's America. Everything is fucked, like... <laughs> <laughs> and what I want to put in your head next time, viewers, is the part that always bothers me. And I like I, the part where I almost want to freeze frame and get a magnifying glass is a <laughs> person we will talk about again, Frances Bay, is standing at the window watching a famous old lady actress. You'll know her. And she goes, I don't see how they could do that. I could never read a book. And then she immediately eats something crunchy. And I yeah. think there's supposed to be a bug on that piece of food that she doesn't notice. Like, that's like I a real lynch. Yeah, but I it's so it's hard to see. It's very small. Yeah. But I think that there's like a fly on the cookie she's eating uh, when she says, I could never eat a bug. And I'm like, uh, there's your thesis, lynch. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but because it's her, you're like, ah, I'm delighted. I guess. Well, she's now holding cream corn, right? So it's yeah, just, yeah, man, there's exactly. so yeah, many connections to Twin Peaks here. Twin yeah. Peaks for, uh, yeah. yeah. It's well, yeah, that and I mean, we haven't even talked about the soundtrack, which is a uh, Angelo right. Badalamente and Julie Cruz, who, of course, Same. would then do all of Twin Peaks. So, yeah, like if you love Twin Peaks and you haven't seen Blue Velvet or vice versa, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> what are you doing? We didn't Something even productive? mention Roy Orbison, but then again, we yes. can't play the song because of no, issues, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Good Lord. MVP well, he, of Blue Velvet. Is he he didn't want it, but then he <laughs> yeah. saw it and loved Blue Velvet. So yeah. uh, he yeah. won it him was over. Meant to be, it was meant to be crying and not in dreams. And then Lynch kind of reversed it at the last minute, which is interesting yeah. well where i got it <laughs> which can i just end this segment by saying if people haven't heard um katie lang's version of crying stop oh. what you're doing right now and go listen oh. to it because holy oh. shit it's great if i could tack on to that if you haven't heard angelo badalamenti's uh torch lighting song from the 1992 barcelona olympics uh <laughs> be prepared to <laughs> realize the 1992 barcelona olympics were briefly like twin peaks and can i add on that lana del rey in 2012 13 i think did a cover of blue velvet in a very lynchian music video that lynch was not involved with at all but lynch loved it loved oh, lana good. del rey like there's just that is a perfect sort of vehicle for lana del rey to subvert <laughs> I think that's exactly where we have to end this. All right. When we come back, we're obviously talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So grab your slickers. Let's get into some serious Tom Savini realness. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 1974, director Toby Hooper set up a viewing in a small L.A. screening room for fellow Texan and screenwriter Kit Carson of a movie he'd just brought to Cannes. Kit brought along his buddy Paul Schrader, and they were forever changed by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The two stayed friends and hoped they'd be able to work together at some point in the future. A few attempts to work on projects fell through until 1984, when Kit's screenplay for Paris, Texas won the grand prize at Cannes. That's when two things happened. Kit's agent informed him that he was now part of a list of elite screenwriters, a list he realized he did not want to be on and he would need to do something to get off as soon as possible. The second is that Toby Hooper had finally found a project they could work on together. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Two birds, one stone. Now, I haven't actually seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is a big gap in my film history knowledge. And this is the only installment I will probably ever see. (laughs) Alicia, I know, is in the same boat. But Cam, (laughs) you have seen at least the first four, five? How many of them are there? There, There's there's four originals and then the reboot. And then the reboots get tough because there's like a reboot prequel, a sequel reboot to the original film. Is that the legendary film ones? I know it's changed like distributors and producers often. It also changes. Boy, oh boy. It's it's, it's almost a Night of the Living Dead where (laughs) I know there are rights to it, but the rights seem real easy to buy Uh, because there's one just there's there's truly ones you've never heard of. Uh, there's two different movies just called Leatherface. Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> 3 is Leatherface, and then there's a recent one called Leatherface. It, the important thing to know, I think, that maybe has been lost with time is it's a, a fairly respected movie in its time. It, I, it I, also yes, played yeah. at Cannes, uh, which is kind of wild. Uh, it was huge it, at it, Yeah, yeah, very respected in Europe. Uh, and so what what is very innovative about it what I don't know if you still to this day do but when I was in film school you watched it is that it it uh, uses almost only diegetic sound there is no soundtrack in the film mm. uh, which really increases the terror and realism so yeah, horror, in many ways really yeah totally and I think at the time it, it really made people rethink horror so in many ways he's uh, Toby Hooper is kind of uh, an honorary member of New Hollywood because of when he was working and and the verite style he used he was a documentary filmmaker wasn't he yeah he's kind of from all sorts of walks of life he he had a famous movie before that he you can't really find and he admits is a, just a psychedelic nonsense garbage <laughs> movie but almost all the texas chainsaw massacre people worked on it i do okay. want to say that i would like to watch the first film and i had planned to there was a tiff screening of um i think the program is called american new american gothic uh, probably programmed by Robin Citizen. I'll have to fact check mm-hmm. that. But uh, COVID hit, couldn't do it. Yeah. But I was geared up to see this film theatrically. I just, I've made it, I think, bigger than it needs to be. Yeah. And I'm so scared of this film. <laughs> but I but I love the second one. This is sure. pure burlesque to me. I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. Including a lady lead, but we'll get into that. Uh, yes. Well, anyway, what, what we need to do to transition to the second one is, essentially the first one is about uh, this group of uh, hippies who uh, have trouble on the road. They meet a hitchhiker. Uh, the hitchhiker ends up being nefarious, and mm. uh, they end up being led into this nightmare house uh, where there is, uh, notably for this film, uh, a cook who kills people and turns them into food to eat. They're cannibals. Uh, and uh, an Ed Gein-inspired killer, Leatherface, who uh, is a giant kind of butcher who wears a face made of uh, people's skin. Uh, 
it, for you theory, say this so seriously, yeah, I, don't know. I know. <laughs> for for <laughs> for theory's sake, it's important to know that in this film, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, it doesn't happen. But Leatherface also frequently likes to uh, wear women's skin and and make himself look very pretty. He's considered hmm. a bit of a sometimes a pseudo trans red character. Uh, though at the time, uh, Gunnar Hansen he wanted him to be like the shape in Halloween. He considered okay. him to just be a cipher, and when he put on skin, that was him. Uh, putting on a mask um the film we see leatherface is treated quite differently um this so... is a film series though if i if i if i can ask um because mm -hmm. i read the the av clubs run this series which oh, has like yeah. very you know quick yeah. blurbs about what each one is kind of about and it seems like this is a film series that changes lore faster than any other series like halloween's kind of oh, in there yes. but like this is like totally renaming what the family's named yeah. and like new characters pop up and you're oh. just kind of expected to follow there along. there's almost nothing consistent and even the so a part of the appeal of the first film is it pushes very hard that it's based on a true story like like fargo or something okay. it's not at all but uh the first film opens with like a series of polaroids the sound you might know from texas chainsaw massacre is the sound of a polaroid going off uh mm -hmm. of this crime scene and people investigating a crime scene uh and like talking about the real like the real murders of the texas chainsaw which the, this film opens with as well so anyway the, the whole point of this is this movie kind of already rewrites it uh kit carson and toby hooper toby hooper didn't really want to make a sequel to texas chainsaw massacre but they stumbled on an idea they liked which was kind of this heightened parody turning it into a weird parody of reagan's america and texan conservatism uh so this film sees us uh on uh the the weekend of the red river showdown football game which is a huge uh game uh, between uh, Oklahoma University and the University of Texas, Austin, uh, where essentially all of Texas comes to town. Uh, they have chili cook-offs. Uh, as, as, <laughs> as the cannibal cook says, this is the biggest weekend for meat in Texas. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's, there's this, these two men are killed on the road. And you find out essentially that since the events of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, that these... Texas is essentially in denial that there is a string of uh, murders, uh, that there are chainsaw-wielding murderers who are somehow traveling around Texas, continuing to kill people. And pretty much everyone is in denial, save uh, Lefty, uh, a lawman who is kind of shamed, who is the uh, uncle of two of the characters who were killed in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1. This this I didn't get, so I'm glad you're... Yes. And this is Dennis so, Hopper. Yes. yes. So eventually you will see Franklin, who it, most people are, is more memorable, who is the guy in the wheelchair in the first movie. Uh, when we say is, guy, we mean corpse, right? Yes. Okay, <laughs> but he was right. a guy in the first film. He was an alive guy who got killed got by Leatherface. And Christ. for some reason, they have transported his corpse yes. with them to this underground lair. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got so, it. I mean, it's all, it's all kind of interesting iconography. Uh, so, yes, I guess I'll start with the main character. The main character is Stretch. <laughs> yes! Uh, Stretch is a DJ at K Okla, a, uh, God, I can't remember. Oh, Burke Burnett, Texas radio station, okay. uh, just outside of Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, and she is essentially har harassed on the phone by these preppy uh reagan era douches they look uh, like creeps from night of the creeps they yes. do good call mm -hmm. uh and that was very much i guess kit carson and uh, hooper were like well he was killing hippies in the 70s what would he kill now and they're like the cool guys at the dallas mall who you hate <laughs> uh and while they're you know sexually harassing her and, and just talking talking nonsense you know football bro kind of pre-game nonsense uh she overhears them being murdered with a chainsaw. Um, with a chainsaw. Maybe that's and, obvious to listeners. But yeah. it wasn't it's to it's a pretty great scene, actually. I think of the the like introducing you to how bloody and gory this film is going to be like the guy gets like his head chopped immediately and it's like you know spurting blood and everything and there's a great interview with tom savini who did the um special effects of this and people who don't know tom savini he is like considered the wizard of gore um his stuff is like always over the top always grotesque um he appears in um dusk till dawn as like the weird codpiece yeah. vampire like who, that's who that's kind of his thing doesn't know tom savini yeah. and people i'm sure if you're listening to this podcast you probably do um yes but he was 
very disappointed because apparently a lot of the effects in this were even more gory yeah. that they did not appear in the shots that they used. So, for example, in that head being chopped open, there's actually all these packing peanuts covered in blood, so it looks like brains yeah. kind of like slipping out. It's a whole thing. It's anyway, worth saying I love that this, this movie stuff. is extremely violent. Oh, yeah. If, if you don't have a stomach for that, as much as I think that this is a great film that everyone should watch, you can't watch it if, if I, skinning I, and goring. I don't know. I don't. I out. don't have a stomach for it, and I can watch this Ugh. because it's such a parody that I am. I guess somehow distracted, right. and the gore feels cartoonish to me, even though it's it's excellent gore. It looks very realistic. I will say that there are some a, f- a handful of things that I find incredibly yeah, stomach turning. Now that I think about it, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of hidden heads with hammers. Yes. That's no fun. That's yeah. bad. Anyway, the 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 plot just to get to quickly get through it. It's Stretch uh, ends up teaming up with Lefty, who 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 has been chasing these chainsaw wielding murderers. Uh, Lefty pulls the kind of bad idea of using Stretch as bait mm-hmm. for the family by getting her to replay this murder uh, and essentially smoking out the family on her radio station. On her radio station, which gets her and her producer LG. Uh, embroiled in this uh, this murder cult, but Stretch is is a very active protagonist. She she says she wants to do greater things than what she's doing, so she really wants to stop these guys. And when given the chance to escape, she does not escape. And her yeah. and Lefty essentially pursue them to their uh, lair at a uh, Texas Battleland, a <laughs> defunct amusement park based uh, on the Vietnam War, isn't it? Which is uh, it's bizarre. based on all Texas battles. Okay, uh, you can see uh, Alan. Civil War guys. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so they they end up confronting the family, and we we see the most of the family in the previous movies. The families were a bit of they were a bit of a cipher, but here you get to know Leatherface and the cook much deeper. You get many speeches from the cook. You get a new guy, Chop Top. Love uh, Chop Top. Bill Mosley. Yeah, Bill Mosley steals the show and is the thing that I can barely watch. Who loves picking his own scabs and eating oh, yeah. them? Yeah, that makes me want to vomit. No, you're <laughs> With a hot is. coat hanger, he heats up yeah. the coat hanger, scratches his head and you're like ah yeah and then yes. yeah it's horrible yeah so this is radio land huh the infinite turtle the the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever and uh they are joined by uh the corpse of the hitchhiker from the first film who they now call nubbins that's nubbins that's nubbins 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 is the corpse thing that bill mosley likes to dance around with so nubbins is separate from franklin Yes, is, Franklin is Franklin's the guy victim. in the wheelchair. wheelchair the corpse. Yes. The, the like, the like, kind of one weird emotional. Because it's worth saying, uh, D- Dennis Hopper is essentially playing like a weird John Wayne who's like twisted and religious and kind of bringing the religious fury down. And the one with kind a of chainsaw with cha- many chainsaws, three, I think. And he, uh, the one time we kind of see him break is when he finds the body of Franklin. His nephew, and, yeah. Uh, his sure. nephew, who, who, which reminds him what he's doing it all for. Don't you cry, my brother. I'm here now. I'm here now. They can't do this. They can't do this. And uh, if you're a big... Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 head, you know that the thing that was cut is uh, Stretch is also his daughter. Uh, Which is insane. Uh, and she doesn't yeah. know it. Okay. Yes. Uh, but he doesn't know it either. So it's, but it's, that's also kind of uh, an incredibly um, bleak Toby Hooper, Kit Carson thing where I think that they were trying to say, guess what this family's fucked up <laughs> cannibal family's fucked up so well, so is the regular family it's also <laughs> a bit of a stretch if yeah, you will yes. yeah um uh, i think for me the idea that um the the cannibal family is actually extremely functional yes. they stay like, together the family that kills together yeah. stays yes. together well, the saw is of, family which you know many people have tattooed on them yes uh, the, a lot of them uh a lot of people point to that, that they are meant to be the reagan ideal because uh, yeah. it's like they are the nuclear family which stays together uh, I mean there's weird things like it, it is in the end you find out a matriarchal sort of thing because grandma, the yeah. kind yes. of god of them all is this grandma that's like up upstairs in the weird chapel the shrine yeah she's, um, she's dead but yeah or, or is she that's, that's oh. the weird thing too because uh, oh. she kind of moves <laughs> You're Grandma Alicia and right Grandpa. Now, <laughs> there, so uh, there's also this long Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing that potentially they they never really die because they consume human flesh. 
because uh, grandpa is meant to be in some iterations like a civil war guy here here they make him an, an unemployed uh due to mechanization uh slaughterhouse worker yeah but, which uh, I love. he's wearing a tie and everything it's so funny like yes. he's going out for a job interview that he's never gonna get but grandpa oh grandpa in the original film is also a disgusting thing where you think it's a corpse but then he starts slurping up blood uh and kind of animated here he's quite a bit more animated but grandma is barely animated but then kind of looks around when she gets her arms torn off i might uh, need to rewind i'm no i'm not going to I'll just take your uh, i will say the I'm reason sure i clip. am so with this movie is my friend uh filmmaker and horror writer uh craig stewart watches it every year for his birthday so i've probably seen this a dozen times you uh, you are the reason i saw this i would have normally when we were writing and researching 1986 i was like absolutely not cam no way in hell but mm. you really did convince me that this is very me which i yes. found upsetting and then understood after watching it um still unclear why it's me but i do i do really want to thank you for bringing texas I, listen, two into my life it's a thing that no one would think to watch uh, i will say where we are proudly hopefully hosting it for halloween on uh hollywood suite yes. and alone because i think it can stand alone as its own film oh yeah uh, no question what what i learned with rewatches and with craig who who loves uh, film theory and horror theory is that this film it, it was a fine enough hit and i think big on horror because it's full of gore it's full of these great performances carolyn williams is great bill oh, mosley so is great good. as we say uh but it's a film that was really rehabilitated uh in the 90s and 2000s by theorists because you've got carol clover who really feminist, feminist critic yeah. who talked about uh essentially texas chainsaw massacre one and and talking about kind of uh, the feminist reading chainsaw as penis, you know what what you would think. Uh, but then Jack Halberstrom, uh, publishing at the time under the name Judith, has a, a book called Skin Flicks. Uh, if you're looking it up, uh, and uh, <laughs> it is about tight. kind of yeah various feminist queer readings, and really does a big thing that uh, we'll talk about on our show. With the same problem happened with uh, Friday the Thirteenth where uh, mm -hmm. it, this film was read as incredibly misogynist, partially because you have the chainsaw penis waving around and yeah. very explicitly a penis. Uh, but yeah, Like uh, between Carolyn Williams' <laughs> legs, basically. Yes. Like, it's, it's... Yeah. But what Jack Halverson points out is that, like, you're denying female viewership when yeah. you consider yeah. it misogynist. Because, like, it's a very active woman character. They also point out it's a very active butch together woman who is not you know not very feminine and is just manipulating all the thing is from the minute she realizes that this is a sexual thing for leatherface she is manipulating him yeah a and that's why like carolyn williams says like oh, you know this is a love story <laughs> this is about so two people to <laughs> who actually like each other like she she comes to trust uh leatherface and and she is not in the fight with leatherface because leatherface is pretty much on her side uh which is kind of wild <laughs> okay what are you pissed off what about me listen this is not gonna work out <laughs> i'm trying to be open with you it's nobody's fault i just can't do this <laughs> She's also kind of, I don't want to say sexually harassed by her coworker, and I really love the character of LG, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he's constantly asking her out, and she has to kind of put him off, and you get the sense that this has been going on for years, um, and she really is like, that relationship is, is to me actually a very feminist relationship, and he's a very um, surprising character who ends up saving her, but not in a way that she would ever be like the damsel in distress. Yeah. Yeah, by yeah. wearing, I, I should say, by wearing his face, yeah. she is able to. <laughs> yes. Crazy. Oh, I it's mean, crazy. there's, yeah, it's very, I mean, and this is, I think, going back to what I enjoy in this film is, is it, it's a surprisingly rich text. Mm -hmm. Like, you can kind of rewatch it from X or Y angle and enjoy it. And, and I think that part of that is because Toby Hooper and Kit Carson were very they felt a big weight as at the time two of the most prominent filmmakers of texas yeah. and this is a very texas production this is like a lot of the stuff you find very interesting is because like the cinematographer is this guy richard chorus who is just the cinematographer in austin he was kind of like the big guy and they mm -hmm. wanted he had wanted him for texas chainsaw one and didn't get him so it, he came back but like the cinematography is wild it's all very well considered so when you're talking about like lg and stretch 
that's kind of this fascinating dynamic because you have these two Texas actors who like know this dynamic between men and women and like what is that what that is like is is it bad is it good and you kind of don't know but you she has this great affection for this guy who kind of obviously is always asking her for a date and he's like 20 years older than and he's 20 years older than her but he and he's kind of a good old boy but he's also kind of sweet and you're like Mm -hmm. "Eh, like maybe could they be a good couple i don't know hard ass hard ass me Maybe a semi-hard ass, but I got a soft heart. You do feel bad when he dies. Like, that is one of the things that I think this film does really well, is that when he dies, the way he dies, (laughs) you know, twice. Is it because he's not wearing any skin? (laughs) Oh, no, and I mean, he he is heartbreaking. It's fascinating because Lou Perryman was uh, just a crew member on Texas Mm -hmm. Chainsaw Massacre 1, but he's Mm -hmm. just so good. He also became like um, a staple for Toby Hooper. Like he's mm. in Poltergeist. He's in a few other things, right? Yeah. He interesting for true crime people. He was murdered. He was murdered mm. in his own home by an ex by uh, someone who had gone off their medication. Really horrific and horrible. Yeah. I get what you're saying, Cam. And I think yeah, the weight of as Texas filmmakers, as Texas crew, like what this means. It's interesting to me because I was reading um, a piece on this about how probably the closest like companion this particular film has is gremlins 2 mm. it's almost like you know because there's so much expectations for gremlins 2 and it's very much a burlesque of gremlins 1 like it's just totally satirizing the ridiculousness of the first film it's really like filmmakers nuking the franchise from orbit <laughs> didn't work it actually yeah. did work in gremlins except we do have critters and, and ghoulies that take over but um it it didn't work for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, maybe much to Toby Hooper's dismay. And he's never involved again, right? In another... No, he gets yeah. producer credits and producer, creator credits, he but creates, that's it. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's but just yeah, no, it's, token. It, oh, I think he doesn't want to be. The, uh, the interesting thing is, like, yeah, I, I think it's weird because 2 didn't necessarily please horror people because it was... Silly. It was silly. And it doesn't necessarily please the average person because it's so violent. Like, I think he really, uh, he really ramped that up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But it's interesting because it does very much affect the franchise. Because you see, like, Bill Moseley shows up in, in many of the reboots just as, like, a wink. Um, and you see people caring a lot about the family members and making each member. For instance, the next one uh, features Viggo Mortensen as Tex, who's I'm like sorry, kind of a sexy. What? Oh yeah, yeah. There's oh uh, the fourth one features Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. That I knew. Yeah, that makes sense for Texas. <laughs> and so that like I knew. Matthew yeah. McConaughey has a has a robot leg oh. brace in that one. Maybe I need to watch uh, these actually. They're they're pretty wild, but but yeah, and like Arlie Ermy shows up as essentially the cook in the in the reboots. So there is this care the way that they build out the family as this interesting unit, and each one has a purpose quite often in how they lure people into. Uh, mm-hmm. So like in the reboot, Arlie Ermy's a cop who's luring people. So he like fakes, oh you got to come into the station or whatever, and then they get chopped up by Loaderface. Um, and, and yeah, so I think that there's that, and and the better reboots and sequels understand the, the little bit of humor. Uh, can I can I say that there's a line in this film, and it's not? I know we're trying to focus on Dennis Hopper, and Dennis Hopper is unhinged. If you think he's unhinged yes. in Blue Velvet, this is like <laughs> this is his most. I'm shocked uh, in that David Letterman. Uh, he's not like, well, no, it was Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. too. But, um, no, I don't know. He's pretty wild in River's Edge. Like, yeah, there's, there's some other stuff going doll. on there. But yeah. there's, there's him, a, there's him a line, testing the chainsaws. I don't know. There's a line. It's the cook. So Pa Sawyer gets a chainsaw on the butt. He's fine. He's just like minorly injured. And he says, why does this small businessman always get it in the ass? And I'm just, or maybe he's behind. I can't remember. It's just like such a Reagan comment. Like, I love it so much. And I mean, he is like Jim Saito, the guy who plays so the good. cook, is yeah. so good. He's also like so a very good. classic actor who's been this around This is his forever. last role. He never yeah. worked again after this. He, he doesn't die right away. He's and, quite elderly, but he didn't act again. And he's he's the one main cast holdover from original texas so ah, he's okay. uh okay. he he plays the same character in both but yeah i there's i mean he is just endless uh <laughs> like the when they're like what's your advice for great chili it's the meat uh, don't skimp on the meat uh, <laughs> someone spits out a tooth yeah, yes so he good. just and he uh. just mumbles nonsense to himself and i always love like people love the size family thing but like yeah. his actual code is you have one choice boy 
sex or the saw sex is <laughs> well nobody knows but the saw <laughs> is family and that's like so good he's such a like i mean it's meant to be this kind of weird twisted inbred but he's like the the great conservative where he's always talking about i'm just trying to run a small business and you yeah. jerks uh you yeah. monsters always trying to so he's he's like you know he's your q anon chili business yes exactly his his food truck let's be honest this is an austin food truck well before it's a mobile chili truck Um, oh boy (laughs) so he was uh he was in on that but yeah this is like i say it's just the for instance the the set design is insane yeah they built it in a month one month yeah hearing how they built it it's crazy and then the light the cinematographer being like how the fuck do i light an underground tunnel when there's no electricity and the answer is get as many things from a junk shop as you can and just let them down and 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 it looks great it's this great like it's interesting because you hear it sounded like it was hell this set was a nightmare it was hot they talk about like it was it was an old printing factory where if people went up to the rafters they came down covered in printers ink to the point where they were just like in blackface um but everybody kind of loved it because i think everybody it was a real let's put on a show this is an incredibly short turnaround too i think it was less Mm -hmm. than a year between them not even right like they were writing it on set there's a great great kit carson thing where he said at one point an ad came up to me and said kit stop writing that scene we shot it (laughs) (laughs) and he's like oh Uh, so it sounds like it was a crazy mess but everybody was in on it to the point where like so you're saying that lighting the the guy was like okay well they hoard lamps and they're like what and it's like yeah these guys i don't know they they live in a crazy junk pile of human bones why don't they also hoard lamps so there's like a a beautiful sequence of because they're like there was like a hundred you know yards of chase hallway they had to do yeah and the fact that they built like i can't even remember it's not kit carson or um toby hooper that thought of texas battleland it was yeah. just just one of the uh, one of the like production designers or something it's like what if it's an old theme park and so oh then they God, built yeah. an old theme park like yeah. and it's giant there's like giant paul bunions and stuff and she ends up climbing this massive spire to mm-hmm. uh, yeah and i mean they talk about the bones or uh, the funny thing is they talk about how easy it is to get bones in Texas, but, <laughs> but that also some of the bones were like so ripe that uh, it was off-putting to the to smell the set. Oh my oh. god! Oh no no. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about because they. I also appreciate the fact that like these guys consistently brought work back to Texas. They were like, "This yeah. is where we come from." Like they didn't like, later. I believe for Texas Chainsaw Massacre three, they moved to California. Oh yes, and it's very obviously California. It's yeah. kind of sad. But I like that they actually went local as well for um for the character of Stretch as well. And she has such a great audition story. Where when people tell these insane stories about how they auditioned for something and got it by being a maniac, I'm always like, "Good for you! Don't do that! <laughs> Don't do that!" Because I think there's more stories about people being maniacs and not getting it and being blacklisted like Mickey Rourke in Sin City or um, uh, Sean Young as Catwoman. Like there's always like those things where it's like, oh no, this person, not so much. Um, But her story is pretty great where she was watching all these girls go into audition and they were like, thank you very much as they left. You know, everything was very quiet. And she's like, this is a movie about screaming. Did people see the first one? So she took a run up from the back hall, ran into the room, pulled Kit and Toby off their chairs, piled the chairs in front of the doors, screaming her head off, and then started the scene. And I'm like, that's actually, this is the right movie for that. That's yeah. okay. She is a badass yeah. whore icon. I love watching interviews yeah. with her, which she still gives up to this day about this film. Um, enthusiastic, fan participant, like just, I love Carolyn yeah. Williams. Um, I completely understand the respect that the community has for her because she's really open and just like so willing to talk about this film and like positive and i just i think she's just a beacon of light i love her and she she looks great with a chainsaw too not to spoil yeah, the ending of yeah, the film which I, mean, she... I the other thing i really love is that i've seen clips of the first movie and i know it ends with uh leatherface like yes. whipping his chainsaw around in the sun and she gets that moment on top of the spire and she ends it which i really like and i love that shot i think it's really yeah, great as she goes i will say 
if you ever want uh, also a great wonderful kind of feminist uh which you actually might be there's a lot of gifts i feel like 2020 has really brought up a lot of uh original texas chainsaw gifts but the ending is wonderful because yeah leatherface has cut his own leg and is freaking out and the woman who escaped covered in blood in the back of a pickup truck just mockingly laughing at him as she drives away <laughs> so i feel like that laughing woman covered in blood has been yeah. a, a great gif for 20 2021 i um, think that's exactly where we have to end this driving away covered in blood laughing at what we have seen behind us um all right cameron maitland thank you so much once again for your extensive knowledge of texas chainsaw massacre and its franchise yeah. it's a, yeah. it's a- it's a fun franchise. Two is is absolutely the pinnacle for me. One is a beautiful, well respected film. But yeah, don't maybe don't dig into the whole. Franchise. <laughs> I got no problems with the just some of those Jessica Biel uh, reboots. But uh, four is as much as you really want to see Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. It's not not a great film. It's not fun. Okay. Is, I mean, is it's it fun? fun? It's fun. Okay. I mean, they're, right. they're fun. Bad. It's it's a great sit down with your friends uh, series. Uh, Don't pour myself a glass of wine and wait to be amazed. And maybe put on your hat to decide how you feel about, like, the trans reading of Leatherface. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. It gets problematic in some of them, and some of them you're like, trans icon. (laughs) Yes. There we go. Uh, All right, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much once again for knowing so much about David Lynch. Thank you. I'm going to go warm up my veggie burrito for lunch because I have not eaten meat in a solid week as a result of this podcast. Veggie, it's probably good for you. Give yourself a little bit of I a I love cleanse. meat. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah. just lately I've been a little bit off it for some reason. Totally fair. All right. Are you guys ready to head to 1994? Yes. Oh, it. my gosh. Yeah. Flintstones. So exciting. Okay. Join us again next week for a real drag. That's two Toronto drag performers, Allison Chains and Champagne, will be joining us in the outback as we look at the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Muriel's wedding. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.